Hello and welcome to this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast, sponsored by Biorad. I'm your host, Victoria Reese, Deputy Editor of Drug Target Review. This episode focuses on SARS-CoV-2 variants, how they can be identified and monitored, and how this can aid in public health decisions. For today's discussion, I'm joined by Dr. Justin Lee from the CDC in the US, Professor Vassan from the University of York and Australia's CSIRO, and Dr. Chantal Vogels from the Yale School of Public Health. Before we get into it, let's start with some introductions. Justin, could you give our audience a brief rundown of your expertise in this area? So I joined the CDC uh, fortuitously, maybe about three months before the pandemic began. Previous to that, I was working at a university, Colorado State University, working in their genomic sequencing lab. I have a background in veterinary medicine and infectious disease genetics. And here at the CDC, my role is to run the genomic sequencing lab, which is the core sequencing facility for the agency. So we're basically like a service lab that is here to work with all the different partners across the CDC and make their programs better through sequencing. Thanks, Justin. Vasan, could you also outline your experience with SARS-CoV-2 and its variants? I'm COVID-19 project leader at the CSIRO, which is the Australia's National Science Agency. I also hold an honorary chair at the University of York in Health Sciences. And I did my PhD at Oxford and worked for Oxford, a spin-out company on arboviral diseases, and then subsequently for the British government in Portendown, the Health Protection Agency, and then in Public Health England. And two years ago, I moved to Australia, where I'm currently based. Chantal, could you briefly outline your background? Yes, I'm an associate research scientist at the Yale School of Public Health. Before the pandemic, I would have classified myself as a medical entomologist and an arborvirologist. I essentially studied uh, mosquito-borne viruses. And then really when the pandemic hit, we, we quickly shifted our gears to study the SARS coronavirus 2. And right now we do a lot of genomic surveillance in our lab and we've developed uh, PCR-based tests. So we really shifted gears from mosquito-borne virus to respiratory viruses. Thanks everyone. So I wanted to begin by discussing SARS-CoV-2 and the variants that have been identified already. There are variants of interest and concern, but why have these arisen? A variant isn't necessarily anything inherently more dangerous than other types of circulating viruses. The vast majority of variants, in fact, aren't discernible from other circulating types of virus, either clinically or how they behave in the human population or by most diagnostic tests. And over the course of the last year and a half, many, many variants have come and gone and never really made a headline or become part of the day-to-day conversation. Uh, So what is a variant? A variant, it can be loosely defined as a virus or group of related viruses that have accumulated enough mutations such that they are distinct from the viruses that came before them. So there's enough genetic differences that we can tell them apart and they're forming a distinct group. So the first major variant emerged just a month or two into the pandemic. It was known as G614G. And just within a few months, this variant became globally dominant. And since then, most of the circulating lineages or variants or viruses are descendants of that. And so out of the many variants that have been identified since then, just a small number are categorized by groups like the CDC, WHO, Public Health England, into being variants of interest or concern. And that's usually based on either laboratory-based studies on how they respond to neutral antibodies or on data that shows how efficiently they're transmitted through the population. So most of the variants of interest and variants of concern that are circulating right now have been shown to either in the lab or in real populations have characteristics that make us nervous about how they might behave. 
Thanks, Justin. Fasan, could you elaborate on the SARS-CoV-2 variants that have been identified so far? So there's nothing unique about a virus, particularly an RNA virus mutating. One of the first mutations to occur was called the D614G. It occurred around mid-2020. And subsequently, we've had a number of variants of concern. So we have to use this terminology very carefully because uh, VOCs, as they are called, is a status declared by the World Health Organization. And so far, there have been four. We also have other terms like variants of interest or variants under investigation, which are sometimes used synonymously. And they represent something of potential consequence, but not yet declared as variants of concern. So in light of these variants, including variants of concern, would you say it's best to identify them as quickly and as efficiently as possible? So the the virus naturally evolves over time. So when the virus replicates, there are errors incorporated in its genome and its genetic material. And what we see is that some of these mutations or combinations of mutations are associated with with changes in the the virus. So for instance, we've seen uh, increases in transmissibility, we see that, that certain mutations are associated with escape from uh, our immune, immune response. We see sometimes like a reduced efficiency in treatments. It can have an impact on diagnostics. And that's why it's really important to track these variants. So there's a reason to identify and monitor variants in regards to prophylactics and therapeutics. Uh, there are a number of reasons. For, first and foremost, we want to ensure that the COVID-19 vaccines will continue to protect against the variants. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is similar to the flu virus in the sense that it has an RNA, but it's different from the flu virus because it has a proofreading mechanism, which we call exoribonuclease. This means that compared to the flu virus, the SARS-2 virus will mutate slower. With seasonal influenza, you will be aware that you require a vaccine every year. With COVID-19 vaccines, we don't believe such a scenario is likely. However, it appears increasingly the case that additional booster doses may be required if the virus has mutated sufficiently that the World Health Organization and the local public health authorities feel that an existing vaccine will not be sufficiently protecting against a major variant. That's the first reason. And the second reason is, of course, therapies. In spite of vaccination, because you never have full coverage, you may end up with a few cases which require treatment. And if a variant is affecting you significantly, causing a clinical disease which is more severe, then the clinicians need to be aware of how to treat them. And there will be some changes in the way the treatment regime will progress. What about monitoring variants in regards to public health decisions? Yeah, so with respect to that, you know, information is power. And if emerging variants do have increased transmission or perhaps have the ability to cause more severe disease, the sooner we know about that, the more effective our public health interventions can be. So public health education policy guidelines are constantly being adapted to the current situation based on our understanding of what is circulating. And so it's really important to know what is new and what is increasing in the population over time so that we can respond quickly to this ever-changing environment. 
And really without this information, we can't tailor our approach and a one size fits all strategy is less effective than being able to modify medical and public health interventions as the course of the pandemic changes. Is variant analysis mainly for surveillance purposes at this time? Or is it ever used to evaluate a potential false negative result with a patient sample? I would say that right now, the the focus is mostly on population level surveillance. So by sequencing the virus, we can get an understanding of which variants or which lineages are circulating in a certain area. That really helps us to track the different variants over time and frequency. So for instance, early in 2021, we saw a rapid increase in in alpha, the B117 variant. And by doing routine sequencing, we've been able to sort of track how that variant has been increasing over time. Now we see delta coming up, the B1617.2. Right now, I feel that it's mostly population level understanding what is circulating where and knowing that you may have to adjust your policy. Will variant-specific determinations become important in diagnoses in the near future to help guide patient care? Would you say that there are any practical limitations to this, or is this technique best used for research purposes only? Yeah, absolutely. And even if we know that that certain mutations are associated with reduced treatment, so, so there's been a couple of variants where certain monoclonal antibodies have a reduced efficiency. Knowing that, you might want to use a different treatment in in those areas. If you know that the frequency of those variants is high, it's a safer bet to use a different monoclonal antibody. Clearly, it's incredibly important to detect these variants. Vasan, could you give a bit of detail about how SARS-CoV-2 is sequenced? To answer this, let me give you some statistics. So by the 11th of May, we had an estimated 159 million COVID-19 cases around the world, 3.3 million deaths, and one and a half million SARS coronavirus genome sequences in a public database. GISAID has now become the default database for SARS corona 2. What this basically means is for every 107 COVID-19 positive cases, approximately one case, the swab sample that they take from you, is sent out for sequencing of the virus. Now, this number for a long time until late 2020 was around 250. Since the start of 2021 with advances in sequencing and greater awareness by different governments and initiatives to sequence more, that ratio has come down to 107. Now, the variants are essentially detected by comparing against the original Wuhan Hu1 reference strain and then comparing against it what has changed. Unless we are able to track these variants almost in near real time, we will have lost the edge if a particular variant emerges, which is dangerous. We need to know very quickly. However, in practice, it takes a long time from the patient turning positive to the sequencing being completed. Usually that's being done in a reference laboratory and then the information on the virus being uploaded onto GSAID. So if you actually go and look at GSAID, you will find that there is a date of collection of sample and then there is a date on which they have uploaded the virus sequence information. And that gap can vary substantially across countries around the world. 
all of this means you are looking at a gap of two weeks, three weeks, four weeks sometimes before you can see what is in circulation. Justin, could you elaborate on what technologies are then used to actually conduct and analyze the sequencing information? Yeah, so fortunately for us, in the last 15 or so years, the technology for genetic sequencing has progressed rapidly. And now there are several sequencing technologies that rely on slightly different or sometimes quite different underlying principles. So I'll just give you a quick rundown of the steps that we we do to sequence viruses. So the you know the first step is what I would call the purification of nucleic acids or DNA and its less well-known cousin RNA. The SARS-CoV-2 virus genome is RNA and so that's what we tend to focus on now. And to purify nucleic acids, we use a series of biochemical reactions to first open up cells and then separate proteins, carbohydrates and other types of biological molecules from the nucleic acids we want. And then really in a pretty short amount of time, we end up with purified RNA. And so the second step then is to enrich from that RNA, just the virus RNA out of the total amount of RNA in the sample. So if we wanna focus on just the virus RNA to sequence, we use a laboratory technique that relies on our knowledge of the sequence of the virus to attach short little anchors across the genome. And then we can amplify the genome millions of times so that it becomes the most common sequence in a large population of nucleic acids that were in that original saliva. And then finally, the the third step is to generate the actual sequence data. And so the instruments that we tend to rely on are quite large scale and not as portable as some others. But the take home here is that the technology has become very advanced and relatively simple to use. You mentioned there that there are various technologies that can be used for sequencing. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages to these? Yeah, so like I said, each technology works under, on different underlying principles and chemistries, but they all work by the same principles, which is to separate out the millions of molecules that are in a sample and sequence the bases uh, or a nucleotide. So they do this by moving down a strand of DNA or RNA one base at a time. And then they utilize different versions of modified proteins to release a characteristic signal that is specific to that base. And so sometimes this is a fluorescent light, you know, maybe four different colors of light corresponding to the four bases or nucleotides. It could also be changes in electrical current that are specific to those bases and can be quantified through an electrode. So there's various ways of doing this. And the primary advantages and disadvantages that we weigh when trying to decide which technology to use for an approach like sequencing uh, SARS-CoV-2 would be things like, you know, how much data is produced every time we run an instrument? Is it enough that we can put 100, 200, 800 samples in a single uh, run of the instrument and get out the amount of data that we need to characterize those viruses? But they also vary based on their quality of the data they produce. And so some instruments have higher error rates, some instruments have lower error rates, and then the length of the molecules that they can sequence also varies. And so sometimes there's reasons why you want longer sequence data versus shorter sequence data. But the good news is that out of the most common technologies now, you can generate very good, high-quality data out of many different sample types with relative ease compared to several years ago. Every time we sequence these viruses, we actually characterize every sample in more detail than is required to identify variants. Variants are oftentimes characterized by just a small number of mutations. And so with a few exceptions, it is only through sequencing of these viruses that COVID patients are routinely 
characterized with enough detail to know what type of SARS-CoV-2 someone is infected with. To identify current variants, most of that has been done through random surveillance sequencing in conjunction with epidemiology that characterizes outbreaks. So if there's a cluster of new cases that seem where they seem to be having a virus that's transmitted more frequently than usual, and then those cases are sequenced, and they're all linked to a particular genetic sequence, then that sort of begins the process of flagging a potential variant in a population. Chantal, what do you think? I think there's a there's a couple of challenges there. I mean, in an ideal situation, you would have the ability to diagnose someone, determine which variant it is, and then make an informed decision on how to treat this patient. However, it's it's hard to do that at a very short time scale. For instance, next generation sequencing, which is currently the golden standard for doing this variant identification. It takes time. So for instance, in our lab, we typically have a turnaround time of about two weeks, and that's from receiving samples in our lab. And we know that those all have been tested positive previously, all the way down to getting the consensus genome. So essentially the assigned lineage of the virus that is present in that sample. If you think about that, in two weeks, for sure, there is optimization possible there. This is just specific for our lab. But Two weeks is too long to use that information for an informed decision on, for instance, treatment. And on top of that, right now, to my knowledge, I don't think there are any essays out there that are authorized for use as an actual patient diagnosis. So there are, of course, many different COVID-19 tests, but a specific variant test that first needs to be authorized to, to actually be able to give the result back to the patient. So all the, the, the work that we are doing right now, so we are identifying variants, but we don't report this back to the patient. It's really just the population level surveillance that we're doing, because in order to be able to do that, you first need to have a test that's authorized for that. So what about monitoring variants once they have been identified? What role could real-time PCR and qPCR play? Yeah, you know, most of it, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, still is going to rely on sequencing. There are some PCR and qPCR tests available that will distinguish known variants. However, right now they're not widely spread and their application oftentimes is most applicable or uh, fits best into locations that don't have expansive sequencing capabilities. And, you know, the disadvantage of those is that they can only really detect and differentiate variants that are already known because those assays, lab tests like PCR and qPCR, are very specific to already known genetic sequences, whereas sequencing can detect emerging and novel variants because it's agnostic. It doesn't matter what the sequence is beforehand. Thanks, Justin. So to ensure effective control strategies, we really need to understand the introduction spread of potential pathogenic SARS-CoV-2 mutations. However, standard coronavirus tests aren't a reliable way to fully vet variants, as this can only be done by sequencing the pathogen's entire genome. Chantal, in a recent publication, your epidemiology group at Yale proposed the use of lower-cost, multiplexed, real-time qPCR assays to detect SARS-CoV-2 mutations. How could qPCR assays be used to detect key mutations associated with variants? So when the alpha variant started emerging, we actually noticed that one of the the clinical diagnostic tests, which is widely used in, in many different clinical diagnostic labs, 
We noticed that one of the targets in that test showed target failure when you had a alpha variant. And essentially the way that that test works is it's a PCR-based test. It has three targets, so it targets three different regions in the genome of the virus. And one of these targets in the spike gene was not able to, to amplify anymore with this alpha variant. And as a result, you would get a test result where two out of the three targets would be positive, but one would show target failure, so no, no detection. And that was an indication that, that something was going on here. And this became more frequent because this variant started to increase in frequency. That triggered us to develop our variant PCR assay because we realized that there are other lineages out there that have this deletion in the spike gene, which leads to the target failure. So we wanted to make that a little bit more specific. So what we did is we combined the deletion in the spike gene with another deletion in the ORF1A gene. And having that combination of the two deletions is highly specific for, for alpha. There's still a couple other lineages which are not as frequent as the alpha variant, but having that combination really helped us to differentiate alpha from other lineages, especially given that alpha was increasing in frequency very quickly and having a PCR test that at least can give you a prelim preliminary idea of what is circulating was really helpful back then. The other thing we did is we, uh, back then, we only had essentially alpha, beta, and gamma that just emerged. So we also used that uh, deletion in the ORF1A gene to be able to differentiate between beta and gamma from other lineages. So essentially, our assay was one of the first variant assays that, that focused on these first variants of concern that was able to distinguish them from other lineages. The big caveat, however, is that it's not 100% specific. The one for alpha, the double mutation, right now we, we're still using the assay and we see that pretty much all of the, the samples that we test and that have this double target failure are indeed the alpha variant. If we only see the ORF1A target failure, then there's just a couple of other options out there. So what we do, we use this as a preliminary result. It's very quick. Well, the same day we would get the result from this PCR assay. We then sequence all these samples to confirm our findings, which again, as I mentioned, takes us about two weeks. But having that combination of having a quick preliminary result based on the PCR assay, plus having the confirmed sequencing result is really powerful because that then helps us to get a sense of what are the frequencies of variants that are locally circulating at the moment. So this could be a really effective tool. While full genome sequencing is currently the gold standard for identifying new SARS-CoV-2 variants, this methodology isn't available in resource-constrained places around the world. Could a PCR test be the answer to this? What we hope is that this uh, helps other labs to be able to get a sense for like what is circulating, especially for labs that don't have the ability to do sequencing themselves. I feel that right now there's at least some more capacity for sequencing and there's definitely development to, to sequence more and to, to do it at that larger scale. However, there's, there's many areas in the world where sequencing is just not accessible. And that is because it's, it's first of all, it, it's expensive, it's time consuming, and you need a specific expertise to be able to do next generation sequencing. Without the access to uh, sequencing, it's very hard to do any sort of variant surveillance. But many places are equipped to run PCR, and having a variant PCR can at least help to get like a rough idea of population level variants that are circulating. And we are actually right now 
in Connecticut, cases are going down rapidly. So we actually have less to sequence every week, which is really great. Uh, but we do have a lot of capacity here at Yale. So we've now reached out to our collaborators in the Caribbean and we're helping them to, to sequence samples. So we've helped them to get the PCR assays set up locally. And then they send us samples that we can sequence. And that also helps us to utilize our, our capacity and we help them to get a sense of what's circulating because without sequencing, there was essentially not really any clue which variants are, are locally circulating here. And I do think that having the combination of the PCR assay with sequencing, it's like the way I see it is that it's different tools in our toolbox. I don't think one rules out the other. It's really sort of the complementary beneficial effect that you have if you can apply both tools. Fasan, I wanted to get your thoughts about the sequencing process and how not everywhere around the globe has the same resources to identify emerging SARS-CoV-2 variants. Uh, sequencing is a, a very interesting topic because some countries clearly are testing and sequencing more than other countries. So it depends on a lot of factors, the infrastructure, the amount of money available for sequencing and so on and so forth. But in general, what you find is some countries don't sequence as much because of those reasons uh, to do with the system being overwhelmed with cases or inadequate infrastructure. So the UK, fortunately, is leading the world in terms of testing and sequencing and making those data available in a more timely manner. But if you are looking at a global scenario, sometimes the UK can also skew the results because we know a lot more about what's in circulation in the UK compared to other countries. So sometimes we have to balance the wrinkles in the data. So Chantal, could perhaps the use of both genomic sequencing technologies and PCR assays be an effective way forward? Yes, exactly. And again, you really would like to have that final confirmation by sequencing, but at least it gives you a little bit of more insight. And especially with the alpha variant, I think the assay is pretty solid. And there's the downside of our assay is that we only use the two deletions. There are other assays, commercial assays available now that actually detect specific mutations. So it's a slightly different way of designing your assay. And essentially what those assays do is they pick a panel of genetic markers that are characteristic for a certain variant, and then they have an assay that detects these specific mutations, and then that altogether then informs you of what variant is circulating. And there's a couple out there that especially, again, we're focused on the early variants of concerns and mostly alpha, beta, and gamma. But such assays, just having the ability to run a PCR-based assay is really powerful because that at least still gives some insight in, in what is circulating. And what conditions would be required to implement the use of PCR assays to potentially monitor variants? I think, well, most important is that you do need to have a, a molecular biology lab that is able to run PCR. And of course, there's still some expertise required. However, it's very similar to other PCR-based sars coronavirus 2 uh, assays. So I feel like the, the labs that are already doing the, the clinical diagnostics, they, they should be equipped to also run these type of variant assays. There are some tests out there that do require like specific equipment, but the good news is that over the last months, many different assays have uh, emerged and there's there's option there to, to pick whichever ones suits your lab. So for instance, what we did, we developed a test that worked well with the setup that we have in our lab, but you know, different labs have different equipments. So having different options out there just at least makes it more accessible without having the need to buy new equipment.
So I'm curious about collaboration. How could this help in this situation? We probably need collaboration to support the countries where the resources are limited and help them with genome sequencing of the virus. So this could be in the form of donating them with the equipments or uh, technology backstopping where if the country is able to send the samples to a nearby hub, then those samples could be processed. This is easier said than done because of the complexity of the uh, sample transfer and you know the material transfer from one country to another and all the associated Nagoya protocol doesn't make it exactly easy to send patient samples outside the country. It may be possible in limited situations, so we need to explore that. Justin, did you have any thoughts about collaboration and identifying variants? No one group or country is going to solve it. And so it's really important that we work together as much as possible. And I really think this is how we're going to overcome this and how we're going to get ahead of it. And that's because many of these efforts are focused on trying to share knowledge and resources with developed countries, but also with countries that have underdeveloped public health infrastructure that may need a little bit of support. It's definitely filled with a lot of development, which can hopefully be key in ending the pandemic. So thinking about combating the virus itself now, how can sequencing and the detection of new SARS-CoV-2 variants impact vaccine development and therapeutics? You know, so far we've seen relatively subtle changes in the parts of the virus that are the primary targets of vaccines and therapeutics. And in some ways, it's unfortunate that even these small changes can lead to reduced effectiveness of our preventive and treatment strategies. However, I think in some ways, it's also good news that we have yet to see any variants that completely evade the antibodies developed by vaccination. You know, there's a reduction in the effectiveness of vaccination for some variants, but not a complete escape. And, you know, furthermore, with multiple vaccines available that are all slightly different, it is less likely, in my opinion, anyways, that we'll see a single variant emerge that escapes all vaccines. The other fortunate thing is that many of the existing vaccine platforms are easily adoptable. So if we do see certain variants that are escaping the immune response in vaccinated people, a second generation of vaccines designed to develop broad resistance against new variants could be made, tested, and brought to market much more quickly than the first was. In terms of public health, how could the use of sequencing and PCR assays aid decision makers? I think it it definitely uh, will help to get a better sense of what's circulating. And if you know what's circulating, then you can indeed uh, adjust your policy based on that. I think what's really critical here is communication uh, and especially communication between the labs that are running the essays and then the government, essentially, like really making sure that the right information ends up in the right place. Because really, like now, now that we're sort of progressing, we do see that, you know, new variants are emerging like Delta, which, again, in some places is already really increasing in frequency. And you really want to have like a proactive approach in making sure that we don't get the next wave just because this new variant is emerging and can still spread because not everyone is vaccinated yet. I'd like to get your last thoughts on the importance of sequencing and PCR assays in ending the pandemic. This is going to be key, actually, for the next four years, five years. Now, as the world is getting vaccinated, you are also putting a huge selection pressure on this virus, which means the virus variants, emergent variants, will will be more common. And again, there is nothing to be afraid of. 
most of the mutations are silent or are not of consequence it's only the few mutations the variants of concern we talk about this is going to be more and more common it will be pivotal to understand the evolution of the virus and to stay with the virus if not one step ahead to stay and cope with the virus and its change and doing so will enable us to finally defeat this virus yeah i think i think it's really key that we keep on sequencing i think that's really important also because we're not done yet here right like we just see new variants emerging continuously and eventually there will be more variants that emerge the pcr based assays are really responsive so you identify a new variant you develop your assay and then you can use that to track that variant but you do still need the the sequencing to be able to identify these newly emerging variants and hopefully there's not going to be too many more but realistically as long as the virus keeps being transmitted then there is a chance that there will be new ones emerging in the future so i think we should be really clever in how we use our tools we have so many great tools available now we have our clinical diagnostic test we have next generation sequencing we have the the specific variant assays and on top of that we of course have vaccines we have social distancing we have so many different tools in our toolkit and if we really want to move towards ending this pandemic i think we should be really good with using the right tools all together to end this well thank you so much for joining me dr justin lee professor vassan and dr chantal vogels it's been fantastic to speak to you about this topic it has been my pleasure thank you so much for the opportunity to join your show It's an absolute pleasure Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast sponsored by Biorad. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to more wherever you get your podcasts. Keep an eye out for our next episode coming soon.